Hello and welcome. This is Renegade Files episode 50, Conspiracies, Paranormal Experiences, and Two Years of Renegade Files. Once again, we find ourselves at the pagan holiday of Mabon, the autumn equinox, and another year of Renegade Files cases locked in the black cabinet. This show marks our two-year anniversary, and in honor of that occasion, I offer you the Renegade Files Pledge. I pledge allegiance to the truth and the weird world of Renegade Files, and to the alternative for which it stands, one nation, undercover, invisible, with conspiracies and the paranormal for all. Thank you so much for helping make the show what it is so far, and for exploring with me the bizarre realms of paranormal experiences, unsolved mysteries, conspiracies, and underground culture. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, coming to you from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This episode is unscripted and a bit looser because of it, but you can still count on a good time. As a general outline, I'm going to do this in three parts. First, I'm going to go over some of the highlights and numbers from our second season and year two of the podcast. Nothing too tedious. Plus, I'll give you some stats for the show and my goals and general ideas for the coming year. And I'm not going to edit this to death, so you might hear some breathing or some clicks here and there. In the second part of this episode, I want to tell you a few stories from my own paranormal or unexplained experiences. So, good stuff on the way for that. Stay tuned. These are things I've never shared on the air before. Then, in the last section, I'm going to dive into my Conspiracy State of the Union address, where I'm just going to go over the current conspiracy theorist culture landscape and talk about what I think is happening as far as conspiracy thinking going mainstream while simultaneously being marginalized. We'll look at why that may be. We'll also look at some of the players in the genre, the old guard, who's holding the real deal down now, and who are some of the conspicuously successful new players on the field and why that matters. We're just going to look at what's going on right now in the space with a critical eye a bit because I feel like it's important as we move ahead for both you and I as free thinkers and for Renegade Files as a show. What I'm thinking, where we're going to go from here, all of that. So stick with me until the end and we'll have some good old-fashioned weird style fun. So part one, two years of Renegade Files. This is a quick look back at our second season, how we grew compared to the year before, and what we want to accomplish coming up in season three. So we ended last year with the episode 29, Simulacra and Simulation, What is the Matrix? It's a very popular episode. It's one of the most re-listened to episodes from what I can tell. People seem to like the show. It's a deep dive. It's really complex, but it was also really fun to do. If you haven't checked that one out, go back and listen to Simulacra and Simulation, What is the Matrix, which dives into the idea that we've built such a construct of symbols in our society for communicating that those symbols now refer back to other symbols and we're trapped in this loop where reality sort of escapes us. It's very interesting, very deep, and uh, real heady space in that episode. 
not going to go over all the episodes that we did in the year, but just a few of the highlights. So that's where we started out or the where we left off last time. We did Nikola Tesla. That was really cool. Pop culture smoke screens, very uh, deep dive into pop culture, sort of false flags and smoke screen type media. We did a Halloween show last year, Halloween Society's Paranormal Fix. And, you know, that was a good turnout, too. The Unified Paranormal Theory, that was a great show. Really cool, interesting topics there. I really liked episode 36. That was Native American star people and Wild West UFOs, some of the older history of UFOs, particularly in North America, and some of the Native legends that surround it, and also some sightings that occurred as people moved across the country from east to west in the Victorian era. And it was really cool, and you know, we went back into prehistory, too. That was a great show, very popular. I did the Paranormal and UFO Conference, where we made a bonus episode, and I shared that with everyone. That was really fun. We hit the Cyber Industrial Complex on episode 37. We dug into the hijinks of Barrett Brown and some of those sort of nefarious computer spying worlds of the NSA, Trapwire, and the like. We did a few UFO shows back-to-back, the Stephenville UFO in Texas and the Trinity UFO crash. We did Folklore in the Information Age. That was episode 40. That was really good. Conmen and Hoaxers, which was one of my favorite, but not a terribly listened-to episode uh, comparatively. Not a complete flop, but I don't know. Maybe that's just not... Uh, it maybe it was the timing, or it could have been the title or whatever, but that was a really interesting show. Episode 41, Con Men and Hoaxers. Not terribly paranormal, but definitely fringe culture. Children with Past Lives. We did Area 51. Out of Place Artifacts, a huge turnout for that. Breaking UFO news with the David Grush stuff and all the testimony in Congress. Kind of casting a little critical eye on what's going on there. Still not sold on what's that, what that's all about. We did some more UFO stuff, flying cryptids, Smithsonian cover-ups, the overpopulation myth, and that brings us to the recent episode 49, the Ghost Files Part 2, which was Haunted Objects, a really fun, you know, creepy episode for sure. And that's kind of wraps us up. That's essentially what the season consisted of, and we definitely had a good turnout and we had a lot of good positive feedback. We finished our first year previous to that and what I'm calling season one with 28 episodes and about 4,500 downloads. And this is just to be completely transparent. In year two, which was last year in our second season, we added 21 new episodes, and those received 6,211 downloads for a total of 49 episodes and 10,711 all-time downloads. Uh, the, uh, it's a little ahead of that. This was the last time I looked. Um, that equates to 38% more listens in season two than in season one. So that's pretty good. We're rated at 4.7 out of 5 stars on Spotify, which is about as good as it gets. If you want to help us, drop us a 5-star review there on Spotify if you think we deserve it. Renegade Files has about 1,000 subscribers on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, 1,000 each, and maybe 100 across all the other platforms combined. So thank you for being one of those listeners. That being said, we have a lot of work to do to get to my goals for the show, but I'm willing to do that work, and you've shown me that you're ready to listen. You're ready for the content, and together we'll accomplish the levels that Renegade Files deserves. So let me be fully transparent about what those goals are. There's a lot of opinion around what amount of data podcasters should share with their audience. People want to be a part of something that's already successful, fake it till you make it, all that. But I trust you as a fan of the show. 
and I feel like you're here because you like the content I create, you like my style, and you dig the episodes. You have bought merchandise, and I'm so grateful for the support Renegade Files has been given so far on Patreon, and thanks for the five-star reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All of that has helped the show grow. It's time to take Renegade Files to the next level now, and I want you to be a part of that process and to know where we are and where we're headed. So I'm not going to worry you about whether or not sharing my goals for the show are the right strategic move or not, because you are the show. You are why I do it. You are the person who shares it. You are the one who supports it and listens to it. And you are what makes Renegade Files live and breathe. Thank you. I can't say thank you enough. So I'm just going to be honest. We have about a thousand subscribers on Spotify and Apple each. And those two platforms make up over 90% of all plays. According to Patreon's internal statistics, the average podcaster gets one supporter on Patreon for every 1,000 subscribers, about. So we have 2,000 subscribers and six Patreon supporters. So when you look at it like that, Renegade Files is doing extremely well percentage-wise on Patreon. My intention has always been, and still is, to make Renegade Files my full-time job. To do that, we need about 400 RFA agents on Patreon. That is absolutely doable. In fact, it isn't even remotely an unrealistic goal. It is the lowest stage of my long-term goals for the show. If the Patreon internal statistics are correct, then Renegade Files needs to grow the show to 400,000 subscribers in order to get 400 supporters on Patreon. At that point, I'm guessing we'll be hitting around 4,300,000 career downloads, also fully possible. Now, going from 10,000 downloads and 2,000 subscribers to 4 million plus downloads and 400,000 subscribers seems like an incredible jump, but I'm guessing that the growth of something like this is not linear, but that it ramps up exponentially after a certain economy of scale. The more episodes you have, the more views you can get, the more people that join, the more people see it. I'm really not sure, but it is. it does seem that that's the case. People that do well in this game are consistent over a long period of time, and that's my plan. When Renegade Files achieves that goal of 400 RFA agents on Patreon, here's what it will allow me to do for you. As I've said, first and foremost, that will make Renegade Files my full-time job. As such, it will allow me to do four main things for you. I can, number one, devote even more time to researching and producing the episodes for Number two, create periodic live stream shows and co-hosted episodes, and that would be really fun. Number three, attend one UFO, paranormal, or conspiracy conference or field investigation each year and make a special episode based on the expedition. And number four, I will give away to one RFA agent selected at random a brand new, unopened Blu-ray DVD box set of the entire series of the X-Files, Plus, some cool Renegade Files merchandise included as well, just because I think that's a super fun thing to do. The X-Files is cool. I'll do that the day we hit 400 patrons. In the face of such numbers, you can see why so many podcasters give up. This is serious work that takes long hours, and at the level of production that I like to create, it takes tedious time. And as you can see, the payoff is not instant. Now, I don't spend tons of time worrying about what other podcasts are doing, but I will try to compare this show to others in the space to see if Renegade Files is in the ballpark of what we should be getting as far as subscribers and support. I think we are given one factor. 
quantity, and consistency of released episodes. The shows that are way ahead of us on Patreon and subscriber-wise, but that are in this for the same amount of time or less, are the shows that put up more frequent episodes and in a more consistent way than I have been able to accomplish so far. One example is This Paranormal Life. It's a podcast that I love, a bit different than what we do here, but it's in the genre. And those guys haven't missed putting up a show once a week for four years, and they crush it on Patreon. Check out their Patreon page and see it for yourself. And good for them. They deserve it. There's another show that has 10,000 subscribers, and they put up as many episodes in a year and a half as we have in two years. And their shows come out every two weeks or faster and pretty consistently. And there are others like Sam at Tinfoil Hat, who posts shows at least once a week and sometimes more. Great show there. He's a machine. And I've done way more research than just looking at other shows. And the point is, these goals for Renegade Files are totally achievable. And the one thing that I can see that I can do to help make that happen is to actually produce and upload episodes more often and more consistently. The Renegade Files production quality and content and topic analysis strength are all there. Doing it at that level and as a one-person project is serious work, but I like doing the work. I love it. I know I said it at this time last year, and I did try, but I still didn't accomplish my intention of putting out a new episode on the 1st, the 11th, and the 21st each month. In this last year, our second season, I averaged fewer than two shows a month, and there were a few months that I only posted one show. That's exactly why we're not at the numbers for subscribers and patrons I wanted to be at at this stage. I accept the responsibility for that. I own it in the most humble way. I don't have any excuse, but I did post three shows a month when we started out, and I know I can do it again, and I think it's one of the critical success factors that will determine if the show hits its goals I've set or not. We have some big topics to dive into this season, so the material's there. All I can say is that I'll do my best to deliver three shows a month this year, and we'll get back together here in a year to see what the numbers look like then. Enough accounting and statistics and goals. You get it. We've done pretty good. We have room to grow, and we're going to grow the show together. I think we have something unique with the Renegade Files, and it's worth driving it to the level it deserves to attain. So thanks for helping me do that. Okay, so where do we take the show from here content-wise? The general format is here to stay. I like to put a focused intelligence onto the official narratives and find new ways of looking at all the weird things in our world. UFOs, cryptids, ghosts, suspicious deaths, and obvious assassinations, and the world of underground culture like hacking and high strangeness and philosophy that looks at modern paradigms. It's a wide net, but a fun world, and we're going to keep diving into those unexplained mysteries and bizarre cultural phenomena. So, cool. I know you love all that stuff. I love it, too. It's why we're here. This year, I want to get into some of the big hits, like JFK, LHO, Crop Circles, Mandela Effect, CERN, Roswell, and a lot of those will be multi-part series that I'll post back-to-back. Those shows give us plenty to work on and set us up for a great year, and it'll help me hit our release targets. But beyond that, I feel like the show is growing intellectually as we move through time, so Here we find ourselves at a sort of crossroads. One road is the safe path, that generally harmless, although extremely interesting topics, and it could be said, rightfully so, that I've erred on the side of caution with the topic selection over the years so far. Not bland, 
but also not hellfire conspiracy chain yanking of the most confrontational manner. In general, that's just not my style. I'm basically a positive person. I refuse to be a slave to the division of the nightly news. As such, I don't naturally pick a side that fights against them, but a position that explores what they leave out, what they fail to report, or what they frankly lie about. That being said, I'm passionate about what could be called in the educated conspiracy circles certain untouchable narratives. To put it bluntly, I think that renegade files could go a bit harder. We could dive deep into those elephant-in-the-room subjects that everyone, short of those who swallow the mainstream wholesale, knows are absolute false flags, but that no one in polite society wants to talk about. Do we want to go there? Maybe. I mean, there's room for us to tackle some of those more controversial subjects. I'm passionate about some of those topics, and there's a place for that content. I say give no quarter. Let's go deep this season and just get into it. I also think there's space for us to dive a little deeper into what would be called alternative history in our current school system, but what would have just been called history 20 years ago. There's a reason that governmental education wants to erase the controversial moments of the past, because if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. They want a population that's easy to control. So they want that population to believe that flying one flag and removing another flag is a revolution, but that the actual revolutionary war against an oppressive government was just a bunch of racists. They dismantle the narrative of intelligent revolution by attempting to cancel Martin Luther King Jr., Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln of all people. We know that no one person is perfect, but if Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. are the villains in the story of history being taught to kids, then that story is fiction. So I think we have to choose to weave actual history into renegade files where those historical moments are relevant because the validity of our own history is being marginalized by the same people who have brought us such gems as common core math, men can get pregnant, and Abe Lincoln was a racist. As we go deeper into the bigger, more sacred cow subjects in the world of conspiracies, we'll just naturally integrate those parallels where history repeats itself. Good stuff, but enough housekeeping for now. Let's do something more fun. Here we go with part two. These are my own paranormal experiences. I wouldn't consider myself a paranormal repeater by any stretch. These five things are just unexplained things that I've experienced, but we're talking over my whole life up to now. You know, I've always been into UFOs and the paranormal, so I wanted to share a few real experiences of my own. First is what I call the digging ghost of Colorado, because it's almost Halloween and so in, and I thought I'd start with a ghostly tale. So this happened to me back when I was a senior in high school. I went on a snow skiing trip to Steamboat Springs with five or six of my friends, and uh, we got a condominium and lift passes, and the place was really neat. It had a fireplace. It was two stories. And we went out there and skied for a week. And at the time, you could drink 2% alcohol beer if you were 18. So we drank as much of that as we could pound down. And we had a great time. So the condominium that we stayed in was in a complex of several condos. And they were sort of all these, uh, maybe townhouse is the better word. They were all separate, but zero lot lines. And just these little two-story buildings that were back to back and it was very nice it wasn't an old creepy haunted looking place it was it was relatively new at the time 
and it was two stories, a fireplace, a living room, and a kitchen, and maybe a bedroom downstairs and two or three bedrooms upstairs. All of us had our own bed, and a couple of them had their own room. I don't really remember. But where I was staying was in the downstairs bedroom with a buddy of mine, and there were two beds, and they were underneath a window. And, you know, when we first started, everything was normal. But as we were there, we would come home and find weird things, like the heater would be turned on to 90 degrees, or all the lights would be on, or all the lights would be off, or or the TV would come on by itself, or a lamp would shut off. And we really didn't think anything of it because it didn't happen in rapid succession. It was just over the first two or three days that we were there, we noticed these weird little things, but no one really mentioned it, I don't think. So on this particular night, about halfway through our trip, my friend and I were getting ready to go to sleep, and in the bedroom where we were, the heads of the beds were up against the wall, and above that wall or in that wall was a window that had a Venetian blind, that time where you turn the, the type where you turn the... the stick and it tilts back and forth and closes and opens and so as we're laying there I think one or the other of us mentioned that dude why is the blinds moving and it started to move back and forth as if the wind was blowing it the window wasn't open the air wasn't blowing in there and the it was just gently rocking back and forth and then we heard some scraping or some sort of commotion outside and we both sort of climbed up out of bed and stood up and looked out the window or kneeled up on our beds and looked out there. And the way that the condo was situated was that the windowsill of this window was just a foot or two above ground level on the outside if you're outside. So the downstairs was at least sunken into a hill that was on the back side of the building, I think. And as we looked out, sort of peering through the strips of the Venetian blind, you know, peeking out like you do, we saw someone out there digging. And after we looked, you could see there were some lights from the neighboring buildings on the exteriors, and it looked like an old man, sort of in rumpled, like, old-fashioned farmer clothes or something. And he had a shovel, and he was digging a hole right outside of our window. And we watched, and we watched, and he dug, and he dug. And it was very unusual, just this methodic, plodding digging. My friend and I were like, what the hell is that guy doing? It wasn't super late, but I would say it was midnight around. And finally, my friend said, let's just go out there. Okay, let's go out there and look and ask him what he's doing and who cares. And, you know, we were high school seniors, full of energy, and we both thought that would be a good idea. So we got up, we walked to the front door, we put our snow boots on. We didn't have any weapons, so we just grabbed ski poles that were leaning up against the door. I don't know why. Walked around the corner, turned the edge and down the side of the wall, went to the window. No one was there. And when we got there, not a footprint in the snow. Not a hole, no shovel, nothing. Pristine, clean, fluffy white snow under the window where we had just stood on the inside and watched this old man dig with a shovel for five or six minutes, tossing snow, us watching the snow fly, us seeing the shovel go deeper and deeper, and yet when we came around there, nothing. My friend and I both freaked out. You can ask him to this day. He'll tell you the exact same story. No, Everyone said we were full of it, but absolutely we saw it. And then after that, all of those weird things that were happening in the house started to escalate. Every time we would come home, the heater would be turned way up. Every time we would watch TV, it would turn off and on by itself. All the lights went crazy. And we made it through the week and nothing bad happened, but everyone was convinced, okay, fine, this condo seems to be haunted. 
We never found out any story, any backstory, nothing like that. It was long before the days of Ghost Hunters, and it was just a very real, visceral, physical thing that I saw and experienced, and it freaked us out. So next up would be in the UFO category. As much as I love the subject, I'm not that person who's seen tons of UFOs. But as people say to me quite often, there was this one time, right? So there was this one time when I had to go to a meeting in the next county north of me. I had to be there at 8 a.m. And I wasn't sure exactly where I was going. I kind of knew the area, but not somewhere I traveled to a lot. So I wanted to leave very early because being late was not an option. The meeting started at 8 a.m. I had to be there ready to go. I couldn't come walking in the door even a second late. So I left my house. This would be like an hour drive, right? Left my house at 5 a.m. And my plan was get up there, find the building and the address and see where I'm supposed to go. And then I can go across the street and have a cup of coffee or whatever. And then just dip right in right 10 minutes before the meeting and I'll be set. Rather than going somewhere that's an hour away I'm not, and I'm not sure of the area kind of thing. So that's what I did. And I headed out and I left at 5 a.m. Where I was driving is US-1, which sort of goes north and south up the general coast of Florida. So I'm driving along, and I notice out of the left uh, driver's side window in the sky, ahead of me a little way, something orange in the sky. And at first, I just glanced at it, and I kept driving. And then as I drove a little further, I saw that it was still there. And so I looked at it again, and sure enough, it's this glowing sort of orange object. And so I rolled down my window. It was kind of a cold time of year for where I am. So that means it was 60 degrees. Roll the window down so I can get rid of the glare from the interior lights and that sort of thing. Get a better look at whatever it was. And it was just hanging in the sky. It was, by my estimation, I would guess to be maybe a thousand or between a thousand and two thousand feet in the air. Hard to tell because I had no idea how close or far it was. So the closer it would be, the lower it would have been, and the further away it may have been, it would be potentially higher in the sky, at least off the ground. But I had no way of telling if it was about the distance away that I thought it was, which would have been maybe a mile, my guess is would be about 2,000 feet in the air. So four times as tall as the tallest communication tower you've ever seen, right? Um, Five or six times as tall as a normal cell phone tower on an interstate lower than the highest flying jet airliner, about the height of a normal, maybe single engine plane flying locally. I don't know. And it wasn't moving. It was the color of a campfire, the best way I could describe it. Like when the campfire gets down to where there's still some flames and it's just lazily burning, that orange glow of fire, a firely and it had that undulating sort of uh, molten kind of manipulating effect of fire too. It it didn't look like flames shooting out, but it was just this sort of pulsating orb. I know it sounds crazy, but that's the only way I can describe it. It was orange. It was glowing. It was undulating. It looked like liquid sort of uh, light inside of something round. And I watched it as I drove for a couple minutes. Remember, I'm driving at the time. There isn't tons of traffic because it was really early in the morning and I wasn't in a busy area. So I was able to look at it, but I still had to look back at the road every now and then. And I would say I watched it for three minutes as I drove. It didn't seem to change position in the sky. I wasn't leaving it behind. 
which is an indication that it may have been a little further away than I thought, kind of the same way the moon will seem to be stationary. And one of those times, after a couple minutes, when I looked back to the road for a second and I looked back up there, it was gone. I didn't see it leave. I didn't see it fly away. It never moved. It didn't go up and down. I couldn't hear any sound coming from it. And I have no idea what it was. I've since come to learn that glowing orange orbs exactly like that are seen all the time and that it is a category of UFO. I didn't know it at the time, but it it didn't scare me. It didn't freak me out. There was no way to take a picture of it. This was before everyone had a phone in their pocket. And um, it was just one of those things, you know, I saw it. Absolutely. No idea what it was. That's that. This next story happened when I was a kid. I was about 11 years old, and my family had taken a trip to the Bahamas on our boat. My dad was a navigator and boat captain, and we traveled through the Bahamas every summer. So we were over there on our boat, not a giant boat, a 25-footer, a blackfin, which was perfectly capable, although not exceedingly comfortable if it was terribly rough, but a seaworthy boat, although a small boat, and we had taken it to the Bahamas and we had cruised the sort of uh, south area, uh, Stafford Creek, Hard Bargain, um, up in there. And we were going from Nassau across the Northwest Providence Channel to get to, I guess, Hopetown and Great Guana out on, the, on that end, uh, um, the Marls. Um, and the Northwest Providence Channel is a very deep channel that runs between Spanish Wells and Cherokee Sound in the Bahamas, and it can be extremely rough. And a storm came up when we were making that crossing, and it was so rough that my dad had to wear a scuba diving mask as he was driving the boat because rain and seawater were just pouring into the boat over the windshield, and we were making our way. It was very rough, very sketchy. I I have come to know later that my dad was very scared and I wasn't happy about it, but I was just an 11-year-old kid kind of hanging on and going for a rough boat ride, as far as I knew. There was no one to be seen. We're in the middle of the Northwest Providence Channel. Very rough situation, potentially life-threatening. And all of a sudden, I hear my dad say, what the hell? And I look up, and he sort of stands up on his toes, and we overtake and pass by an enormous black wooden sailing ship. I would say easily a hundred feet long, like an old fashioned pirate ship, but full masts, at least three masts from stem to stern, not a single sail and not a single person on deck. No rigging that we could see, just a massive black wooden boat hull giant sailboat a ghost ship my dad was shocked he he just could not believe it and all he said was that's remarkable what the hell that's unbelievable and i remember him saying there's no one on deck and all we could do there was nothing for it it was too rough to even slow down there weren't any cameras back then that you could get a hold of right quick and take a picture of something like that or at least it just wasn't in the cards you know you're you're risking your life and and you got a long way ahead of you of risking it further and we just came upon this giant what i call a ghost ship we didn't see a ghost it didn't disappear but it was certainly out of place and it completely freaked my dad out 
It had no markings, no flags, no sails, no people on it. And I remember it, and I can picture it in my mind to this very day. I wonder if my mom remembers that. I'm sure she does. It was a harrowing boat passage. It was extremely stressful, more so for the parents than the kids. But we did make it across, and along the way, we saw this unexplained giant vacant ghost ship. Phenomenal. So the next story is a short one, but it's a weird one. So here it is. I, I was driving home one night, and this wasn't that long ago. I want to think it was after I started the podcast, so within two years ago. And I had gone out west in the evening, and, you know, I used to like to go on drives. I don't do it as much, just to clear my head. I was coming back from just taking a little drive out west, and I was on a rural road where there's maybe a house or two, some farms, fenced-in cattle area out west of where I live. And one of these roads is a main thoroughfare, although not heavily traveled because of the location. It moves from east to west. It connects the sort of more populated areas with the rural side between here and the interstate, essentially. I was coming back down that road, and along one side of it, there is a large drainage ditch. And on the other side, farmlands and houses and stuff. And I see something come not out of the ditch, but from the side of the road where the drainage canal is. And it at first looked like a dog, and it may have been, but it ran across. It, it wasn't dark yet. It was dusk, but it was still plenty of light. I didn't have my headlights on. The sun was going down. And whatever this creature was, it was about the size of a Labrador retriever. It was black. It ran from left to right across the road in front of me at about a 45-degree angle moving away. As I said, at first I thought it was a dog, but as I got a good glimpse of it when it crossed the highway, it was it was had a very skinny body and long, narrow legs, like a whip-like tail and a very small head. The best way that I could describe it would be if an otter had like the legs of a greyhound. I have no idea what it was. It didn't turn and look at me. It just trotted across the road. It crossed through an open barbed wire fence and into this farm area that had some myrtle bushes and other scrubby stuff, and it kind of disappeared into the woods over there. I have no idea what it was. It was weird. I don't think it was a dog, but it, but it wasn't a, an otter either. It certainly wasn't a raccoon. It was nothing I've ever seen. It was a cryptid. I call it the cryptid dog. No idea what it was. I just saw it for a second. But the size and shape and proportion of it was so monstrous is the best way that I could describe it. Imagine an otter with the, with the long, skinny, tall legs of like a tall, frail dog and a tiny head and a tail that looked like a rat's tail. It was bizarre. I have no idea what it was. That's all I can say. But who knows? Finally... And this is the last story I'm going to give you, and it defies any explanation I've found, and it's one that freaks me out when I think of it still. So back in 2008, I attended a large conference in New Orleans on the week before Halloween, and on that trip, I flew out of and returned to the Orlando International Airport, what they call MCO. The Orlando Airport Terminal is shaped like a square. The center of the square is an atrium with a food court and restrooms and some lounge seating for people waiting, so all the normal airport terminal stuff, right? 
The terminal houses eight ticketing locations, and these are situated on the north side and the south side, with ticketing counters for four airlines on each side. The north side is called side A, and the south side is called side B. The food court and the common areas divide these two sections, and for all practical purposes, A side and B side are mirror images of each other as far as what's there. The only real difference being that the four airlines on side A are different than the four airlines on side B. When you drive into the airport, you have to know your airline so that you pick the right side to pull up to and park. Each side also has its own parking lots, parking lot A and parking lot B for terminal sides A and B. Simple enough, right? When I flew out for the conference, my airline happened to be on side A, the north side. So that's the road I took and the parking lot where I parked. On the third level of, I think there were four levels, and you take an elevator to the street level, cross that road where the cabs are and cars dropping people off and picking them up on either side, and uh, you go into the A side of the terminal, you find the ticket counter for your plane, then from the corners of the building you head to your gate. There are four gates, one at each corner of the terminal. If you head into the food court from side A, you can see the mirror image of the same things you just came through beyond the common area where you're looking across to side B. But from either side, it all essentially looks identical. The same kinds of doorways and hallways and seats, all that. So I parked in parking lot A and I made the flight. I had a great week in New Orleans. That's how cool people say New Orleans. Then I flew back. When I got back, I made the trip from the gate to the main terminal and headed out through side A, down the stairs, between the cabs, across the street, up the elevator, and into the parking garage A. But I couldn't find my truck. I looked on every aisle of the level three where I had parked or where I thought I had parked and my truck wasn't there. Now, it had been a full week ago, though, and I hadn't really paid much attention when I was trying to catch my flight out. And I wasn't positive about the side I had came from, although I was pretty sure, but I knew my car wasn't on side A because I had just looked. So I thought, well, I must have parked on the other side. So I left, crossed back down over the street, back into the main terminal, walked directly through the center of the food court, across to the other side, down those stairs, across that street, up into the elevator, into that side's parking garage, and I was shocked to see that I was again inside parking garage A. Now, it's kind of a far walk. I'm not exactly sure how far, but it's at least 10 minutes because there's some curved hallways and stairs, and it all looks the same except for a few signs. And like I said, I wasn't fully certain it was the same side, and how could it be? So there I was in the parking garage, so I went ahead to look for my vehicle, and again, it wasn't there. This time, I also searched the other four or however many floors of the parking garage there are, but I couldn't find my truck. I thought I must have gotten turned around somehow, so once again, I crossed back to the street. Along the way, I saw a broom leaning in the doorway to a stairwell on my way to the elevator. I took the elevator down to the road, crossed into the terminal, walked through the food court again, straight ahead, out the doors on the other side, across into that parking lot, and looked up to see the sign, parking lot A. No flipping way was exactly what I said aloud. And at that point, I was getting physically tired from walking back and forth an entire airport terminal two and a half times, particularly since this was all happening at the end of a long flight and a week-long trip, and I was already worn out. All I wanted to do was get home. Then I also started to wonder if I had parked somewhere I shouldn't have, like maybe I parked in the rental car return area or something and my truck was towed. 
I should also point out that I was totally sober, (laughs) but there I was. So I searched the lot, every floor, no sign of my truck. And exhausted, on my way out, again, I saw the same broom in the same doorway. And that was the first time I got truly shaken up. I knew I had seen that broom on the other side, and I began to become confused, to say the least. Once I was back inside the terminal, I tried to ask someone if they knew how to exit the building to the north parking lot, or if there was some kind of tunnel that connected each exit to the other side or whatever. Because remember, this is a long walk through a bunch of hallways and stairs, and it's confusing at the best of times. What I realized pretty quickly was that no one who works there actually works for the airport. They work for Delta, they work for Jiffy Cab or Wendy's or any of the other businesses located at the airport, but none of them know anything else about the building that they can or are going to tell you, so I was on my own. All I could do was cross the terminal again, which I did, take the long walk down the stairs, through the hallways, across the street, up the elevator again, to find myself in, once again, parking lot A. And I dragged myself up every floor and down every row, and my truck was not there. So I stumbled back into the terminal, physically and mentally exhausted in the literal meaning of the word exhausted to the point where I was delirious. I was seriously worried for my mental and physical well-being and nothing like this has ever happened to me before. I plodded back across the atrium walking toward the other side of the terminal. I made it out and into once again parking garage A and on every floor no truck. So I turned around again I walked back into the terminal and seriously feeling like I was losing my mind, I tromped along like a zombie. And for some reason, I paused. A thought occurred to me and I said to myself, why not? What do I have to lose at this point? So I stopped in my tracks. I did a 180 degree turn and literally laughing out loud like a deranged mental case, I walked back out of the building from the direction I had just come from. Everything looked the same. Same hallways, same stairs, street, same elevator, same parking garage, side A signs. But this time, no broom in that doorway. And I felt this, like, glimmer of hope. And on the third level, there was my truck in the exact spot I had left it a week ago. I could not comprehend what had just happened to me, and I didn't care. My truck started right up, and I drove out, paid the man at the gate, and headed home. I had walked back and forth across that terminal and crossed inexplicably into the same parking garage over and over for longer than it had taken me to fly from New Orleans to Orlando. When I stopped in the middle and turned back around to go the opposite way I just came, I went back into still the same parking garage and there was my truck. I've only ever told that story to a few people. I call it the airport space-time fluctuation. And it's an experience that I pray I never have to go through again. So this brings us to part three. Lex Gordon's Conspiracy State of the Union. A conspiracy theorist is someone who can observe the culture and its catalyzing events, and within those, recognize patterns, identify connections, and understand context to the degree that the resulting conclusions or possibilities supersede coincidence and illustrate alternative viewpoints whenever the official narratives fail to satisfy logic. Now, 
we need conspiracy theorists because we need free thinkers to analyze what's going on in the world because the news just doesn't give us a full picture. They give us spin. They give us agenda. They give us their own side of everything. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's wrong. It's by and large always negative. It drags you down. It puts you in a box. It divides you against your neighbor. It makes us fight each other. It's preposterous. I refuse to engage. Now, what's happened is the democratization of the tools and platforms of publishing and reaching a wide audience have given rise to podcasting and other forms of media that are socially driven and user content created so that we can all have a voice or at least people who make the effort can. And it isn't always a good thing, but it's better than than stifling communication. So that's that. Mainstream media has traditionally vilified these people because they like to be the gatekeepers of knowledge and information. Simple as that. So who were the OGs? Bill Cooper, crazy, no doubt, but not always wrong. Jim Mars, absolutely. Jim Mars, he dove into JFK. His books are outstanding. He was a great guy. He was the real deal. And a lot of things that he said said that have come to pass. There's also Dave McGowan. You know I love Dave McGowan if you listen to our Laurel Canyon conspiracy episode. Fascinating researcher, all-around good guy. The greatest of all time, Art Bell. None of us would be here doing this content if it wasn't for Art Bell. He paved the way into the world of weirdness. We all owe him a debt of gratitude. You can find all the Art Bell shows on the archives, um, Google Podcast Archives, and it's worth going back and listening to. They do play it as reruns on some uh, AM radio stations late on Saturday night if you hear his old shows. Pretty cool. Art Bell's a king. I love the guy. Then we have Wave 2. So Wave 2 of the conspiracy theory community would be like Daniel List, dark journalist. He's definitely holding it down. Gordon Rochefort, uh, those conspiracy guys, fantastic, huge monster podcast, and rightfully so. I I always mention Sam Tripoli, tinfoil hat. There's also Michael Parker. He's kind of like between the newest crop and and the old guard, but definitely if you can find some good vintage Michael Parker... The guy's outstanding. He interviewed Dave McGowan, among other people, and he's and he's just such an affable, sort of positive, really intelligent person. I always felt like he should have been bigger, like he never quite got his due. And maybe it'll come, you know, he's still around there, he's still out there. Definitely a valid voice in the world of alternative media. Check out Michael Parker if you never have. Also, Richard Hall. Richard Hall's sort of at that same Michael Parker level, level where he's known by certain people, but he's not like a household name, but super intelligent, really clever, and a witty sort of observer of, uh, observer of the culture and a caller out of BS. I, I like Richard Hall. He did this thing where he analyzed the speech of the Apollo astronauts along with a speech analyst, and if you can ever find that, it's fantastic. We have Clyde Lewis, Ground Zero. That's an AM radio late night show. Clyde Lewis is cool, you know. It, he, he does this thing where he, he uh, exhausts himself in the staging of information a lot. He, he's sort of always building up, and, uh, and then he'll be right back after these messages. But the show is good, and, and I don't mean to take anything from it. It's a great show. Isaac Weishaupt, um, his, his show is fantastic. He recently changed the name of it. Let's see what is it called now. I can't quite remember. Okay, Isaac Weishaupt's show is called Occult Symbolism and Pop Culture. He always dives deep. He definitely gets into some freaky territory. And he's, and he's that part of that new school sort of upper tier conspiracy guy at the moment. So now we have something happening 
that is cause for concern and caution on the part of you and I, the listener or the consumer of alternative media, which is the growth of conspiracy culture within the mainstream. You can easily find tons of conspiracy documentaries on Netflix. I just read an article uh, about the effect of paranormal television and how that sort of colors people's ideas of the paranormal, good or bad. Unbelievably, uh, Russell Brand, who seemed to be this untouchable former Hollywood insider, new king of conspiracies on YouTube, where others are either shadow banned or outright kicked off. I was ready to give you my theories about what was going on with him because I was thinking he was either limited hangout or controlled opposition, as other people have said, or if he was any kind of legitimate, they would just let him get so big, then pull the rug out to discredit him and discourage any of his free-thinking followers. And that was my own fully formed opinion about the guy's seemingly unchecked success in a genre that's notoriously censored. But I was shocked, and I guess not really, But to see the breaking news that I read as I was preparing this episode, Russell Brand has now been accused of sexual assault or rape by five women for incidents dating from 2003 to 2013, so from 10 to 20 years ago. None of the women have been identified, and Brand has not been charged with any crimes. But even so, YouTube has demonetized his channels, including his main show that has over 6 million subscribers. And according to YouTube, they did it because Russell Brand no longer meets their criteria for content creators. And that's a pretty wide net. That means they don't have to give the guy back. It doesn't say they did it because he did anything wrong. They just said that he personally doesn't doesn't any longer meet their criteria for uh, their community or whatever. He was also dropped by his talent agency, His current tour was canceled, and his content was pulled from some other outlets, like a few BBC apps or streaming services or whatever. Now, my honest and truly believed disclaimer is that any assault is a violation of your freedom to not be coerced, and that sexual assault is a violent crime to be taken seriously. But when you have accusations, no accuser identified, no trial, nothing formal, just an allegation on some TV show, and the accused is denying it very passionately and intelligently. You can watch his video while it's up of him saying, absolutely not. I was promiscuous back in those days, and I've been open about it. And he even says maybe too open. And he has witnesses that can contradict what these accusers are saying of him, maybe where they were when he was there or not. I'm not sure. But it results in him being demonetized by his biggest platform and dropped by his agency and other media companies all instantly just based on an accusation. So you have to question the timing when these are about things that literally happened as far back as 20 years ago, and only most recently is 10 years ago. I'm not saying that if he did it, it's okay. It's obviously not. But we don't know, and we see the power of the accusation. Not making any judgments about Brand or his accusers, I'm only saying that the timing of this is suspect. It isn't that it matters how long ago you were assaulted, But when you're talking about 10 and 20 years ago, why come forward now? Serious question. You can't say that they waited because they were affected by his popularity and it pushed them to come out because he was way more of a celebrity a decade ago. He was starring in big Hollywood movies. He was married to Katy Perry. He was a movie star insider. Why wait until he leaves that crowd and starts a conspiracy theory channel and start spitting truth about paper mask mandates and election fraud 20 years later. It seems more calculated than just some people coming forward about something the guy actually did to them that was wrong. 
It seems like they let him get so big, spouting an alternative viewpoint, then they wrecked him in one fell swoop. I guess it's not all over yet. I mean, he still does have his YouTube channel. They just took his money away. All it takes is an accusation and you get your income stream turned off by YouTube. Apparently. So we also have the Daily Wire, and some of them are okay, but Ben Shapiro, he's just rage bait for the far right. I think I heard Sam Tripoli say that, and I totally agree. He's the one that is like, you know, the videos that say Ben Shapiro owns this LGBTQ activist or whatever, and he, he goes on camera and he sort of berates these people, and, and really, there's a reason for all that, for a, for a character like that. He seems to be the, the sort of active, aggro voice of the far right conspiracy crew but whenever there's a divide and conquer agenda you will always see people or groups who rise up to harvest the attention and screen time and minds of the divided and peddle their influence and products to people on both sides those of us who have been into conspiracy theories and basically thinking for ourselves for decades have to be careful to keep thinking for ourselves for a long time those with the alternative opinion were on the outside So it was easy to know who was who, and alternative information, although it took the effort to find it, was relatively easy to find and distinguish. What's happened now is that the content creators on the cultural observer side, and by that I mean the pure, real deal, looking at all the evidence and trying to sift out the spin conspiracy theorists, have been at it for so long and have poured so much effort and intelligence and open-mindedness into the genre through video platforms and podcasts that they've grown big enough to get the attention of the big media companies, or at least some departments within those companies. So now, those big media organizations want their share of the conspiracy theory shelf space in the attention grocery store, so to speak. When those conspiracy guys is hitting 40 million downloads, and Tinfoil Hat is consistently in the top 100 of all podcasts, and Joe Rogan episodes get more views than the Oscars, then you can bet that gets the mainstream's attention. They see the numbers on that side, so they trot out their own heroes to get some of that market share. I'm not saying that none of who I would guess to be those people are fully irrelevant. I'm just saying that as a free thinker, always be cautious when you see a new face in an old space. Someone who is suddenly everywhere all at once. Somebody who seems to get a free pass on all the platforms that have censored those who've been putting in the work there for years. This leads to another aspect of what we can call the pure alternative media space compared to the emerging mainstream conspiracy theory products. When the large corporations that control and manufacture the content of the mainstream media begin to dabble in conspiracy topics, There are two things that I think we need to understand. One, exactly what it is they're doing, and two, who are the people doing it? As far as what they're doing, well, when mainstream media delves into the topics of conspiracy theory or even paranormal events like UFOs or ghosts, you have to understand that they are not trying to provide an alternative viewpoint or a truthful accounting of what really happened in whatever event. That's what the pure alternative media, the real cultural observers, and the old school conspiracy heads do. But when mainstream media delves into the topics of conspiracy theory, they are trying to capture some of the market share of that audience, influence anyone who might be on the fence, and flood the space with their own traffic to marginalize the independent researchers and reporters, and even the free thinkers. So let's be aware of that. 
one of the funniest things I've heard was on one of the big streaming platforms on their own branded conspiracy theory show. And in the intro to the podcast episodes, the hosts say that they just want to be clear that they are not conspiracy theorists. (laughs) So if you're not a conspiracy theorist, why are you hosting that show? Which brings us to the second thing. And we need to understand when it comes to this sudden love affair with the conspiracy theories that the mainstream seems to have developed. And that is, who are the people doing it? Before we get into that, let's clarify that I'm not talking about who these individual people are. Maybe a few of them. But this is just a general observation of what's going on at those levels as far as big media is concerned. To do that, we need to understand a phenomenon that occurs as organizations grow larger and larger. This is something that Christopher Knowles talked about with Sam Tripoli on episode 611 of Tinfoil Hat. That is, when we look at these large media properties and productions, we assume that because those in charge of those at the forefront are parts of this giant, successful, far-reaching machine, that they have the intelligence to back it up, and increasingly we see that they do not. There's a reason for that. When systems and organizations become so complex and so large, they succeed by inertia and economies of scale. At those levels, if you're someone with any kind of free-thinking intelligence, you're just going to get marginalized out of the system. Very large organizations with millions or billions of dollars in cash flow don't need someone concerned with truth, accuracy, efficiency, improvement, or streamlining of the process. Those types of people just rock the boat and giant media machines become concerned with maintaining their power and influence, and they do that through stability. Ultimately, stability is maintained through mediocrity. Mediocrity becomes the norm, so we see things like no innovation coming out of Hollywood for 20 years, just endless remakes of old movies, or live-action portrayals of comic books that have already been written. Ideologues at the top supported by yes-men all the way down until we get vegan politics inserted into Star Wars films. This leads us into the question of, are we seeing the implosion of legacy media and the widespread influence that they have wielded over the last century? When people say things like huge TV and cable networks or the top five big tech giants are too big to fail, think about it like this. Where's Blockbuster? Where's Oldsmobile and Pontiac? Where's the music video industry of first-gen MTV? Where is Sears? In fact, where is The Mall? Enormous companies, entire industries, gone. So it's possible that what we're seeing is the last death rattle of the giant media companies, or at least of their influence. We have Hollywood strikes. We have independent people with iPhones making polished movies that are better than anything Hollywood has put out in a decade. And it's because big companies have to deal with unions and have to deal with bureaucracy and have to deal with dancing around not offending somebody by saying one wrong word, whereas an independent creator can just put the content out. And I think we're moving into the realm of independent creators. And make no mistake, 
the legacy media will always try to marginalize those independent creators. So help me be an independent creator, and I'm there for you, and I'm there with you. I'm glad to have you as part of the show. You know it. So that's the end of this one. I hope you enjoyed it a little bit different. Thank you so much for being a part of the Renegade Files crew. As I said, I'm going to do my best to do more episodes this year, and we have some fun stuff to look forward to. Subscribe or follow the show now so that together we can meet here, and I'm going to go ahead and say it, every 10 days to explore the deepest covert stories where logic clashes with the official narrative. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, survivor child.